Welcome to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema both in front of and behind the camera by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated films and exploring their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at ModernSuperior.com. As always, we highly recommend you visit their site to see the shorts that we discuss. We put up links there. There's also great cover arts for each of our episodes. And also you can discover other great podcasts on the network, such as the music-loving podcast Surface Noise. Also, Modern Superior has a Patreon page, so if you want to support the network and the various podcasts, you could do so for as little as $2 a month, which is cheaper than a McDonald's Happy Meal. <laughs> Think about it. I always, like to, I always like to put it in comparison you know cup of coffee mcdonald's happy meal so that you know that your dollar is going to a good place and lastly if you have friends or acquaintances looking for podcast recommendations uh tell them that changing reels is on itunes soundcloud and stitcher and pretty much wherever else you get your podcast andrew how you doing today i'm good it's been a pretty solid couple of weeks for movie reviews for me over at can't stop the movies i've had a very good time with i have to tip my hat to you kong skull island you are absolutely correct. I, I don't remember which episode specifically we talked about this, but John C. Riley is phenomenal in it. He's got this weird, shy, slightly out of touch, but extremely happy to see people he shares a language with, at the same time wary of them. It's like he hits so many notes in that little performance that he gives, and he's only in it for maybe about half the movie. So uh, I highly recommend Kong Skull Island. And I've also watched a bunch of other great stuff. John Wick Chapter 2 was awesome. I actually thought it was better than the first John Wick. Yeah, I, and I agree with that. So I've been in a good place. I've been uh, happy and productive and watching a lot of awesome movies and wanted to make sure that I gave my tip of the hat to you for being 100% correct on John C. Riley. So after I have now perhaps boosted your ego just a smidge, how about yourself? I'm going to bask in the glory of me being right. Um, <laughs> but no, he, he really is fantastic in that film. And like when you're watching it, you realize he's taking that character in directions that you wouldn't normally think about for a big blockbuster like that, like a mindless blockbuster. And I'm thinking about what he went through on that island, his whole family life. Me personally, I've just been busy. I'm not going to lie, I'm a little tired today. I didn't get much sleep last night. The dog was a bit cranky. Outside of that, I've just been watching a lot of pre-TIFF films leading up to the big festival. Hopefully in the next podcast, I'll be allowed to talk about some of them because <laughs> <laughs> there's so many different types of embargoes. I'm just not even going to risk it. But I, I will say that from the ones that I've seen so far, it's the films that I probably wouldn't have thought to pick that have offered the biggest surprises. And I'll just leave it at that. Hopefully I, I can elaborate more in the coming weeks. I'm just going to let my imagination run wild and say that Fred Durst's upcoming TIFF biopic, Getting That Nookie, must be much better than anything we could have ever anticipated, and it will rival The Godfather in terms of longevity and appeal. I know you cannot correct me at this time, but I'm just going to take your silence and inability to correct me as confirmation that Fred Durst truly is the cinematic mastermind that he is at music. I remember, oh, it's, it's been a, a while ago, but several tiffs ago, there was uh, this little movie known as Eight Mile that screened <laughs> as a working cut. And again, people were like, what? An Eminem movie? Scoff, scoff. And then after that screening, people were like, oh, wait a minute. This is the real deal. This is actually a, a good film. And, you know, we, we scoffed at the, the social network, the idea of a Facebook movie, and then people actually saw it. So Fred Durst, you know what? Maybe he might surprise us. His career has been surprising, to say the least. 
<laughs> that's that's putting it mildly. Maybe we'll get the education of Charlie Banks that we always knew we needed. I can't keep up this facade any longer. <laughs> so I look forward to hearing about some of these TIFF things that you can hint at, kind of, but we'll be able to talk about in coming episodes. We'll talk proper about it at a later date. So let's move on to what we love to do here is talk about the movies that we can discuss with you. And we're going to start off with these short films. Andrew, you had a very interesting pick this week. Things have been kind of heavy for me recently, what with my cat getting sick and my grandma dying and dealing with a lot of estate stuff. So both with the feature film and with my short pick, I wanted to try and go a little light. Upon reflection, both of them are a bit heavier than I anticipated, but that's how it goes. My short is the 2015 Pink Grapefruit. It's directed by Michael Mohan, and he also co-wrote it with Chris Levitas. And it's a fairly simple premise. It's not out of the way of rom-coms, which I think is going to be a running theme with all of the shorts and then the feature film we're going to be discussing, where a seemingly happy couple is trying to get mutual friends together. They make hints at her being a little quirky, but really she's just a nervous talker. But their white friend and then this black British fellow that they hope to kindle a romantic spark with. I loved how sensitive it approached attraction and consent because when the potential girlfriend meets the potential boyfriend Mohan he takes a page from Darren Aronofsky's book and as they're talking the words just drift in the background while the two of them are checking each other out and these slight close-ups of their bodies as they're feeling each other out they grow together in this kind of adorably tentative way they're very direct about what they want and it sets up for me one of the most healthy sexual encounters i've seen captured on film because the potential boyfriend asks the potential girlfriend if they would like to have sex that night it's kind of weird to put that into a date book but the more that i think about it they're in this situation that was kind of contrived by their mutual friends and neither one of them really wants to assume too much of the other so as odd as it is to just ask if they want sex in advance it was nice and healthy there's some stuff revealed about the couple that aims to get the would-be girlfriend and would-be boyfriend together that throws what i saw as like a racist wrench in the works that's not against the movie this is against the couple and what the couple chooses to focus on like i don't think that they expected this to work in quick shots, we get glimpses of their tension building as they're watching these two people come closer together. It's extremely sweet, but there is an attention undercutting some of the sweetness with the supposedly happy couple as they're quietly watching and judging the would-be girlfriend and would-be boyfriend. I was with you for everything that you said up until you talked about the aspect of the tension. I will definitely agree with you, though. The natural way they approach this budding relationship, like when you have the couple that's trying to set these two would-be lovers up and they're hanging around in every scene, it's very awkward. But the moments when they actually get to be themselves 
and it's just the two of them and then you start to get the discussions going and I loved how they use the montage of them talking but also again focusing on different body parts you don't have to hear everything that's being said but you get the gist that they are connecting on a certain level I thought that worked beautifully the tension aspect though I did not get the racist connotations from this at all I got something completely different in terms of the married couple's relationship because they hint early on that there's problems like when the wife says oh you know you wouldn't believe it but he used to be handsome back in the day the husband didn't take too kindly to that remark and i got the sense that they were both attracted to either one or both of their friends it was kind of that longing and that desire that they knew that they could never have that friend like i did not get the racial connotations at all so that's why i found it your take kind of interesting in, in that regards i think that i would be kind of more in your direction that maybe there's a jealousy thing going on except that when the couple who hooks up the would-be boyfriend and would-be girlfriend they have a glare about them when they're watching the would-be boyfriend and would-be girlfriend go at it and while the male of the couple is just staring at the black man he's not staring at the woman he's staring at him while he's getting a blowjob of all things and there's no pleasure in his face it's this intent glare and something similar happens with the woman of the couple when the would-be boyfriend and the would-be girlfriend start having sex she watches them from the pool and it's a wonderful little detail but I think it speaks to the comfort of the would-be boyfriend would-be girlfriend that they're so willing to be open with themselves like they have sex with the curtains wide open almost inviting the gaze but no one really invites that sort of thing but the woman of the couple she has a similar glare to her neither one of them looks at the would-be boyfriend would be girlfriend with longing it, it looks like they almost try to get them together just to create some drama for the trip so that they wouldn't have to deal with their own issues that they would be able to play off that because there's one point when the woman of the couple actually says she hasn't screwed this up yet so they were anticipating some kind of drama that never materialized and since they were so focused on the contrast of the would-be boyfriend, would-be girlfriend's bodies, and the lack of lust in the couple's looks, it made me think more that like these people are confronting something about themselves they didn't realize this trip would bring out because they thought it was going to bring drama instead of accidentally being successful. I definitely agree that their motivations, as much as it was to quote-unquote bring two friends together, I think it was still to show off to friends in terms of how beautiful their relationship is, even though the female friend that they're trying to set up instantly says um, to the would-be suitor that I don't want to be like them, right? She can see through their facade the grand house that they're in and the kissing in the pool. She knows that everything is fake. So that's why I definitely agree with you on that aspect and I do think that their motives weren't necessarily sincere but just the juxtaposition in terms of like even something as simple as the would-be couple making grapefruit juice it leads to more like the nice sweet scene whereas when the married couple is making the grapefruit juice it's to pour alcohol in and they don't look that happy with each other and when they're getting undressed it mimics a, a scene that we've seen earlier but instead of the would-be couples in separate rooms kind of facing each other with that little wall in between them now you have the married couple in the same room but they're facing away so i thought that it was more the issues going on with them and i didn't really think it was a 
about race, but kind of I wanted to go back and rewatch it with that view and see if I still get the same thing. Like, I think I, I would still come out of it thinking it's more the married couple's problems that they refuse to face. And seeing this newfound love, they're realizing that this is what they don't have. That is a really good point about the separation scene. When we do see the would-be boyfriend, would-be girlfriend, I liked that they were kind of getting ready for each other. There's so much cute prep work, how they brush their teeth kind of together and how they gussy themselves up kind of together, not ever really in the same room, but connecting in a way that goes beyond words, that it can be plainly seen in their actions. I like that Mohan, whatever it is that led that married couple to sleep in separate rooms, I'm glad that he left that ambiguous. The tension that we can read in their faces, regardless of how you or I choose to read that tension, it's definitely there. The conflict has occurred, but the conflict itself doesn't really matter. It's more how something that used to be beautiful or used to be so heartwarming for these two turned into a bad joke that backfired on them and revealed their own ugliness. I would be very curious to discuss your thoughts if you opt to revisit this, because much like with John C. Riley, you're absolutely correct, and maybe you can point something out that will make me rethink my own stance on this one. Even though I have a different interpretation of certain aspects, I really like this one. There's a point in the middle, I was like, oh, where's this going to go? And I like that it didn't go anywhere that I expected it to. And I like the abrupt ending. It leads to further discussion like we're having now. So I, I thought it was a great pick. Why don't you tell us a bit about your pick for today? <laughs> Invertly, I went the animated route for, I guess, two weeks in a row. This one is a short called In a Heartbeat, and it's directed by Beth David and Esteban Bravo. It was a short that actually my wife brought to my attention because I guess it was spreading like wildfire online one day. So she had asked me if, if I'd seen this short film, and I hadn't. And sometimes when things go viral, I kind of scoff and say, okay, it wasn't that good. But I have to admit, when I started, <laughs> when I started watching this film, I thought, all right, well, let's see animated film okay people making references to pixar whoop de doo and by two minutes in i was like okay this film's got me <laughs> it was, it's just a sweet charming film about these two boys at uh, i guess a prep school and one has a huge crush on the other it comes to the point that his heart literally bursts out of his chest and tries to chase the boy down it's just that whole young love adolescence that awkward phase and especially when you're in school and you're dealing with growing emotions and feelings but then you're also dealing with what your peers are thinking because back then whatever your peers thought was always much more massive in your mind than it should be in real life yes it has that kind of cutesy pixar look to it but i think it stands on its own and i'm very interested to see what these animators do next i was hesitant going into this because most internet sensations end up being more kung fury or that awful power rangers but there is a market for this kind of quick crass mining nostalgia or grittily reinterpreting nostalgic properties so that they can get a stylistic card out i'm not so cynical as to say you know get attention because we all make art and we all do things to get attention that's kind of the purpose of communication so this is 
my long-winded way of saying I'm glad this didn't suck. I'm completely with you. I was very hesitant to watch it because I have seen more reaction videos of people watching it than people actually watching it. And now we've got reaction videos, two reaction videos of people watching it. And while that's adding a layer of absurdity that I still am trying to wrap my head around, it doesn't do justice to the sincere core that's at the heart of this. I love that it takes feelings literally. One of the things that I love about film criticism is once you start accepting what's on screen instead of imagining something different, then it opens your heart and your mind up to more things. And that's kind of what happens in this short. But it also doesn't ignore for all the progress that we've made, especially here in the States with relation to same-sex issues, gay marriage, and so on, that we've still got a long way to go. We aren't always so lucky to see happy endings to these stories. And I did like it comes close to not having a happy ending, that the glare of the crowd is too much for the uh, the slightly more posh of the two. It can't handle it, at least for the moment. If it wasn't for that note of realistic bitterness that we've made progress, but this still isn't 100% acceptable to a lot of people, I probably would have written this off as a fluffy exercise. But with that, it makes the eventual coming together that much stronger. It's not a subtle film like you you have a scene where the nicely quaffed individual, he's literally playing with the other guy's heart because he's throwing up the apple up and down and then the heart takes the place and you have a lot of those kind of moments. It works here because for this type of film, for the audience that this type of film would be geared to, you can't be overly subtle with certain things. Having said that, it's still done in a tasteful way that you acknowledge what they're doing and you still get one over by it. You still go with it. I, I like your point about they're hinting at the bitterness but not lingering in it. Yes, we have seen a lot of films where this scenario plays out and then usually the well-coiffed individual would have caved to peer pressure and there might have even been like an act of violence. And I kind of like that they left that out here. They show that not every story has to be like that. You can have a story where the individual himself is just as unsure and curious about his feelings just as the one who's fawning all over him. They both are going to have to come at it from their own way, but eventually they will work it out and try and figure it out together. You do need sweet films like that, just as much as you need the really realistic ones. That is kind of an important tie-in with what we're going to be talking about later with The Wedding Banquet. Because Ang Lee has made both of those movies. He has made the deeply painful long-term effects of homophobia and seeing those play out across a generation. And he's also made sweetly romantic fables that watch as unconventional families get together and do their thing. This is a good example of a good pairing with The Wedding Banquet, which is what we're going to be talking about a little later. One key decision they made within a heartbeat that I think is extremely important is I'm glad that there is no dialogue. It's so cutesy, bright, and over the top that I think if they had to match vocal stylings with the animation and the story that's being present on screen... It probably would have been unbearable by keeping the story just strictly to the visuals with no dialogue. It makes the one little wee you hear of the heart as it's going after the finely coiffed 
of the tube. It makes those little bursts of excitement mean that much more when we hear them as we're watching the story unfold, as opposed to maybe having to go a little too over the top if they opted to do voice work with this. I kind of agree with that, because there was a point where probably closer to the end where I realized like wait a minute there was no dialogue in this like my mind was putting the words in the mouths of these individuals I like that they leave things open to interpretation and the visuals are so strong in terms of the structure of the narrative that you don't need words this film has a very universal feel to it even though it's about these two young kids and that's probably one of the reasons why it went viral, regardless of if you're in Canada, States, a lot of different places around the world, you could at least identify with the fears and uncertainties that come with falling in love. And by not having to have to worry about voice, I don't know of a culture that looks at we as a bad thing. You know, maybe it's out there. And if listeners want to point me toward a culture where that kind of expression is bad, please let me know because I'd be fascinated to research it. But it just shows that the story is beyond language, that they've had such confidence in the images that they opted to show that we didn't need the extra crutch of someone explaining, well, this kid likes that kid, and if that kid doesn't like this kid, then this kid's going to have his heart broken. And no, it's it's just a brisk, breezy three minutes or so with a nice little bit of bittersweetness topped off with a happy end. So I really had no complaints. So good on you, Internet. I won't say that one of these is worth the likes of Kung Fury and so on. But, you know, Internet, so long as you keep putting things like this viral, I will come back to you every so often and give you a shot. Hopefully the Internet will find praise for the show as well. Okay, that's that's (laughs) thinking too far ahead, too far ahead. No, but this was one that I was glad that it was brought to my attention. I mean, my wife's not a big short film watcher and if it's gotten so big that it's even got her attention then you know that the filmmakers did something right i'm glad that we got to have a little bit of positivity and for once instead of rampant cynicism because it's easy to be cynical these days it's a lot harder to be romantic and this is definitely romantic very true and you know what we're going to keep the romance going in just a moment but we're going to take a quick break to change the reels Our feature film today is 1993's The Wedding Banker. Uh, the film focuses on Wei Tung and Simon, a couple whose five-year loving relationship hits a snag when Wei Tung's Taiwanese parents, who do not know that their son is gay, starts to meddle in his love life. To get his parents off his back, Wei Tung agrees to help his friend and his uh, tenant, Wei Wei, a struggling and feisty artist, uh, <laughs> very feisty, get her green card through a marriage of convenience. Unfortunately, the lie spirals way out of control when his parents arrive to the United States to help plan the wedding. Andrew, before you recall your own wedding planning hijinks, why don't you tell the listeners why you chose the wedding banquet? Well, my wedding planning hijinks can be relegated to one sentence. I demanded control of the music. That's all. But for the wedding banquet itself, Ang Lee is a director who is spoken of in respectful and reverent terms. But watching his movies, I never get the sense that he is reaching for greatness. A lot of the big directors, your Spielbergs, your Spike Lees, even your Catherine Bigelow's, 
they all seem to have these moments in their movies that is a culmination of energy or excitement or frustration or fear or anger. Whereas in all of Ang Lee's movies, he manages this consistent, pleasing, but still challenging tone. With The Wedding Banquet, I wanted to go back to, I guess, a sort of simpler time with Ang Lee before he became the two-time Oscar winner. This was the man who was taking a sensitive and careful look at different culture clashes. It's not just so simple as one wedding lie spitting out of control. We have the different prejudices that they each face. There's some classism involved with Wei Tong's parents wanting the woman to be, that, that they want Wei Tong to marry to be dignified and classy. And I find it hilarious that Wei Tong's attempts at sabotage here by working with his partner, Simon, demanding that the couple's service connect him with someone who speaks five languages, is five foot nine, and has two PhDs. And what do you know? There's this woman here. But she's also putting up a pretense. In the one scene that we have with her, she's also ashamed to admit to her family that she's dating a white man. So it's not as simple as the rom-com situation makes it sound. There's all sorts of conflict with everyone. And I'm a sucker for movies that have a created family, like people coming together despite their differences to form a loving unit. While I have some reservations about the wedding banquet that I didn't when I first watched it. I still think when everything comes together in the end, it is so heartwarming, even if I now have some issues. That's why I picked it. It's been years since I've seen it. What did you think? This was, I think, my second time. Maybe my third seeing it but again it has been years and i still enjoy it it's funny because i had forgotten how much i enjoyed this film but as i was watching i was like oh yeah i forgot that happened or i forgot that joke's in there and like you know even angley makes a nice little cameo when he actually gets to the wedding banquet aspect and i agree with you there's a lot going on in this film there's a lot about generations and how within a certain culture the pressure to honor one's parents supersedes your own happiness to the point where the generation of young 20 30 some old people who can't talk to their parents honestly they're still afraid of the judgment and what have you and then also with all that revere that goes on then you get the actual wedding banquet and it's pure debauchery in terms of <laughs> what's going on and, and lee angley has a great cameo where he says this is what five thousand years of sexual repression this is what comes out of it. It's a, such an interesting contrast, and I like the way how the humor is in this film. Yes, it still feels very 90s, not just in terms of looks, but some of the dialogue, and you watch this, you're like, this is definitely a 90s movie. But when I think back to Ang Lee, especially at this time, from 1993 to 2000, I would say, with the exception of Ride with the Devil in 99, he had nothing, so. nothing but string of like great films, and you have like, The Wedding Banquet, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and Sense and Sensibility. And I think that was the last time he actually did straight comedy. I haven't seen Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, so I'm not sure if that's just straight drama, comedy. But I was thinking back when I was watching this film, I was like, he really needs to do a few more comedies. Because after that, then you have like The Ice Storm, which is fantastic, Crouching Tiger, and Brokeback. It's great to revisit this film and just see how versatile he is as a director. I agree with you that he is revered, but I find that Ang Lee is one of those directors that people don't praise enough. Like, he doesn't have the allure of 
a Scorsese or the full cult of like an Aronofsky, you know? It's just Ang Lee, they look at him and like, oh yeah, he's a, a good director, and that's it. He really deserves a lot more praise because he, he is very skilled. I like that you're focusing on how lighthearted this is because, honestly, if I was going to try and turn someone on to Ang Lee's movies, I'd be much more inclined to start with something like this than going with Brokeback Mountain or Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Both of movies, I think, are fantastic. They're excellent flicks, but we can't we're going to try, but I don't think we can do the humor in this enough justice. There are so many tiny jokes, both in the background, the dialogue, and in the performances that they make me happy. They don't always make me laugh, but they fill me with warmth. There's an early scene where uh, Wei Tong goes to visit Wei Wei in her studio. He's remarking on what she's cooking. After he asks her, she's like, oh, you know, I'm just I'm making my depression special. And he, he says, oh, is it because you're poor? She says, no, just depressed. It's one of those jokes that's so dry. It could probably remove some of a great lake. The casualness that it's spoken and just the matter of factness of, no, this is literally my depression special. I am depressed. That's the level of joke telling he's doing the entire time. And there's even a good handling of cringe humor cringe humor like kind of in the style of the the british office or movies where the goal seems to be just to kind of make the audience so uncomfortable that they have to laugh they're handled deftly here I think specifically of the moment when Simon, who is Wei Tong's partner, he speaks some Mandarin. He knows how to cook a lot of Asian dishes, and he gets two potentially insulting presents for Wei Tong's mother and father. For the father, he gets a, a blood pressure device because a man of his age needs to be concerned with his blood pressure. <laughs> and then for the mother, he gets her beauty cream so that she will won't age it's funny because he's clearly trying so hard but they're also trying to keep up this ruse but he's being disrespectful in an oddly respectful kind of way they don't have that snag moment where someone says something to make simon deliberately uncomfortable or the parents deliberately uncomfortable or anything like that they just let the discomfort play out on the faces of the performers and i love mrs gao the reassuring rub that she gives to mr gao's shoulder when he receives the blood pressure gift these jokes are so subtle and so dry but they add a lot of character and personality to what could have been just a bog standard rom-com <laughs> i was thinking back to also the moment where weiwei sees Wei Tung out on a, a date with the woman from the dating service the impossible woman that they weren't supposed to be able to find but they found the opera singer she comes in and basically lets him have it and basically says you know i'm gonna tell simon that you're cheating on him and she storms off and her manager who i guess is trying to defuse the situation says something to the effect of like why can't they quit after their shift is done or something which means this has happened to him a lot more frequently than expected again it's a throwaway line but for some reason that line like really makes me laugh when when i watch this film but simon i find is a very interesting character because he is a source of a lot of the cultural humor especially because of the gift and like you know he tries his best 
to bridge that gap. He's always by Wei Tung's side, even during the wedding banquet. After Wei Tung and Wei Wei kiss for the crowd, he's the one who wipes Wei Tung's lips that kiss away from the lips <laughs> and he's the one who came up with the idea and, and was like hey this is a great idea we'll have this sham thing but as you see over the course of the film he starts to look at it and go i'm getting the raw deal out of this i did this to help you and it's only hurting me more and i like the way the characters in this film are constructed because they all turn from what we originally think they are so like Wei Wei is the feisty artist who wants to pay her rent via her art doesn't take nothing from it no one but she is deeply in love or has a major crush on Wei Tung as things evolve you you really see her more human side and sensitive side and she teaches Wei Tung a lot about life Wei Tung is that typical I would almost say I want to say I thought he was a businessman when the film first started working out at the gym always dressed nice and you realize that he's a landlord who owns a couple of buildings he doesn't even know how to fix a basic thing he can't even open a window he's not the suave individual that he thinks he is and I like that each character and even the parents as you point out they all are interesting in their own way there's facets to them that you walk away learning something from every one of them and this film if you really look at it is essentially based off a sitcom style premise this is something that you could easily see on like modern family or what have you people are trying to fake this wedding hijinks ensue and everyone kind of laughs it off at the very end but the way how Ang Lee constructs all the individuals all the players on the chessboard it makes this film so much more so yeah it is funny it is late but walk away feeling like you really were a part of this makeshift family for two weeks or however long that period was i want to get back to Wei Wei in a moment because her plot line there is something about it that deeply bothers me on rewatch but in terms of simon that's where the culture clash like you said is most present but also where simon being more out and proud because there's that early shot where i, I believe a friend of his kind of comes in on a bike and they say hey fag and it's like whoa but it turns out that this friend is also gay. They just give each other like a polite kiss on the cheek, and it's Simon who has to deal with the glares of their neighbors that know Simon and Wei Tong are gay. Wei Tong, because of his tight personality, he doesn't have to deal with the same kind of pressure that Simon does. That's why when they do get back together at the end, it's not one of those things where it's like, this is so irreconcilable that they could never imagine one each other again. Because by the end, they both have an idea of the pressures they're feeling. I also like there really isn't like a big blow up specifically about those pressures. There's no speeches. It's just the little things that we see, like the neighbors glaring at Simon when his gay friend comes, or with Wei Tong dealing with his pressures of the mother just bursting out into tears randomly when, when she feels like she's completely failed as a mother at providing the wedding. So we get this idea of the pressures each character is facing from different aspects of their culture so much that when they do decide to come back together at the end, it's like, we're screwed up, we're part of a screwed up repressed system no matter which way you slice it and we both love each other so what the heck let's just keep going at this did like that aspect of simon that it, it touched on the american side of homophobia on top of the basically don't ask don't tell of Wei tongs side of the family and that's funny because that don't ask don't tell as the film progresses it's still 
applies even when you know what's going on. There's one point where Wei Tung confesses to the mother and her first response is, don't tell your father, it'll kill him, he must never know this. And when Simon is talking to the father in a later scene, the father basically says, yeah, I figured this out pretty early on. I sat back, I watched, I listened, and I realized what things are. But we can't tell my wife because, oh, you know, it would <laughs> it would kill yeah. her if she knew. It, it, it's, just, it's that kind of no matter what, you still need to keep things hush hush within that side. Even though father at one point might be on his deathbed and he'd take the secret to the grave, and the mother's going to take the secret to the grave. When you would think that they'd both evolved and the culture, the weight of the culture wouldn't be as heavy on them. But I guess it has been all their life, so you wouldn't expect anything different. Going back and rewatching this, watching Mr. Gao figure out what's going on is another one of its delights because there's something Mrs. Gao says frequently to Weiwei when she gets into the States. Thank you for taking care of my Waitang. Mr. Gao, shortly after meeting Simon, he says the exact same thing to Simon. Thank you so much for taking care of my my son, Wai Tung, because of what he's already figured out, it makes that breakdown scene when Wai Tung and Simon are screaming at each other in English and Wei Wei is also screaming at them in English. Mr. Gao, later on, we know that he speaks English. He uh, at least understands English. He understands enough of what's going on to not disrupt this fight that basically has to happen there's just so much secret keeping but the little hints that mr gao knows what's going on it's one of the things that helps build this up on rewatch instead of it being you know this big dramatic shift there are hints guiding us along the way that mr gao is more world weary than any of us or at least any of the characters might possibly suspect I guess it further explains the need for the restaurant owner to throw the wedding banquet because Mr. Gao was so revered for his service, I guess his military service. I think it's just because he's so renowned worldwide that he knows how to deal with people. He knows how to infuse people. So it's funny because when the restaurant owner is, how dare you not have a huge celebration for your wedding? Don't you know who your father is and you should show him respect and the whole notion of, well, who is the wedding day for? Even Wei Tung puff up his chest and say, well, it's, it's not about them. And it's like, no, it is. A lot of times these ceremonies are about the parents and um, yep. everyone else you know as much as it's the couple's day you could break that down even further and say is it more the bride's day the groom day i'm not getting into that conversation right now i will just say that it is really about everyone else and often when it comes to weddings it's the guests who will make it all about them from like the planning stage to the actual day so and it's just one of those things that you have to know going in if you try and fight it you're just going to cause further trouble for yourself as way to does. I think that's a good enough segue to talk about one of the things that I found really troubling on rewatch because I think I made it this particular exchange much softer in my memory than it is. The wedding night with Wei Tong and Wei Wei, they're stripped naked in the bed before being pulled upstairs by the wedding banquet. Wei Wei kind of has her way with Wei Tong against his will. In my mind, thinking back to this movie, I thought that there was a moment where he actually accepted it or just said okay or something. But literally, the last thing that he says is no. So... 
That would be one aspect of the movie I feel really uncomfortable about because she basically raped him. And I I do not know how to process that with the rest of this movie. It's funny because with your short, we had a individual openly ask for consent before and let her know it's okay if you don't want this, which is for us very shocking. Because <laughs> even in this day and age when consent is a hot topic now, you still don't see it a lot in movies, right? You get the Han Solo effect where Han Solo can force himself on Princess Leia and you're immediately taught that is romance. Like she secretly wanted him anyway. So if he forces himself on her to kiss Princess Leia, then of course that's what would happen. And this is what you see here with the wedding banquet where she does rape him. But it's filmed in such a way and it's almost an acceptable rape, even though it shouldn't be. <laughs> no, but, when you, but if you think about it, like the way how this film progresses, and I, again, I'm not condoning, I'm just saying like how it's shot and especially being a 90s movie he says no he's clearly giving several indications that he does not want this and she just goes ahead anyway then is upset when ramifications come down and he's still not with her in that regard and it's like but you took advantage of him against his will it's one of those things where if it's a female doing it to a man especially in a lot of movies they film it in a way that it's almost like he either secretly wanted it or what have you like there's not that discussion of rape like we're having now and there should be and that's what makes it so jarring especially watching it now with consent being such a important topic I actually had picked my short before rewatching The Wedding Banquet, and it just shows how memory is extremely unreliable, because watching it, I could have sworn that there was some kind of giving in. And it is difficult for me, because I, I, <laughs> I, I don't think that the, uh, the way you phrased it is very good, but... I'm trying to think of, of a different way of going about it that makes it a little more okay. Because she is taken advantage of by Wei Tung and Simon. I mean, Simon, all of his, almost, I'll say almost all of his complaints in this movie are by his own making. Because Wei Tung was perfectly happy trying to just keep up a long distance charade and not bring his family involved into this. Well, Simon concocts this scheme. And Wei Wei, what she wants is left largely by the wayside. So there's enough ambiguity in that scene to say that in that moment, as intoxicated as they both were on the high of the party, we will say the high of the party instead of the alcohol, because that's also opening up a horrible can of worms. But it is a moment where, despite Wei Tung's hesitation, we can read that it ends up being consensual instead of Wei Wei slipping him something and then having her way and then the pregnancy and, and off they go. Oh, um, I, I don't know if it, I think it's done in a way that you're to walk away thinking that it eventually became consensual, but I don't think it ever was. The reason why I say that is because we have a scene very early on in the film when we first meet Wei Wei and she's talking to Wei Tan. I forget what occurs. I think she's crying about not having a job and possibly being deported if immigration comes around he consoles her and she uses that moment of his embrace to try and nuzzle in a bit more because 
so clearly she's trying to make designs on him from beginning and then the whole wedding banquet after party is nothing but one long hazing ritual <laughs> I, I would i would even say that maybe part of the toast because people were very offended when the couple didn't come and toast a full glass of alcohol to them but it's really when you get when Weiwei accidentally opens the door to her hotel room and he can't stop her in time and they all come crashing through and then they set up poker games and they're having them play all these wedding night games to basically get them to the spot where they're in bed and naked and at that point everyone stops to make sure that all their clothes off it's pure hazing up to that point and then you have the encounter which is we'll is stick assault. with encounter we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll just stick with encounter for there's, now yeah there's no easy way to put it. like i think from the moment that door opens to the, when everyone comes in to the next day it is a bunch of unconsensual actions occurring maybe because he is so fueled with alcohol or whatnot that he can't really fight her off as much i don't know but it it is a, a problematic scene it also does fit in with and i'm not a hundred percent on board with this but for the most part i do think it is correct that sexuality being on a spectrum when Wei tong does tell his mother that he is gay later on first of all it's a fantastic scene i, I love ang lee's patience and just sitting his camera down to watch Wei tong and mrs gao have this conversation before gently dollying to the side and seeing that simon and Wei Wei have been listening in for a very long time also it brings kind of the humorous idea that Wei Wei is translating for simon the entire time but mrs gao does say Wei tong he had girlfriends he had encounters and even his best man well i guess his impromptu best man who's known him for 16 years but didn't know about the wedding until last week he says that he used to get girls for Wei tong so there's enough going on that fits in with this idea of sexuality on a spectrum and because of the way that it is handled i could see Wei tong despite trying to do right by his partner Simon, given his past and what's revealed about him through the best man and through his mother I won't say like weakening himself for a moment, but allowing a different part of himself to have a breather instead of having to live this stifled existence that Simon has bravely chosen to be out with, but he continues to be closeted about if we're going through moments that felt a little off, when Simon has a talk with Mr. Gao, and Mr. Gao says he knew what was going on, but he had to keep quiet or else he would never have a grandchild. And you go, well, wait a minute. That part rubbed me the wrong way because it was almost like having the grandchild conceived was so important that they were willing to go to any length possible just to have this child, this offspring. And that never sat right with me in both times watching it. And I know it's supposed to be like, you know, kind of played for laughs and uh, the old man finally gets his grandchild. But it's like, no, the way how you guys went about it and especially trying to force him to try all these dating services and what just to get the child never sat right with me. There is a context for almost everything that involves people lying to themselves or lying to others to get what they want for themselves, but also to try and make other people happy. So I think that we can file Wei Wei's actions in her correctly sensing that Wei Tong was into girls at one point. We can see the harm folks are causing to each other, but they're able to make something good out of it instead of it all collapsing in, well, I guess in a Brokeback Mountain-esque cavalcade of pain. 
And that's what we were talking about with the short films. You kind of need the light and the darkness. It's great that he was able to make this film with the warmth, humor, and then also go and make Brokeback, just kind of rip your heart out at the same time. And that's why I think even though he's got two Academy Awards, I still feel like he's an underrated director. I feel he should be getting a lot more praise for his films. Yeah, he's had a few missteps. I'm looking at you, Hulk. You know, Hulk is awesome. Hulk's, um, the creative aspects to it are great, but that story and... Oh, that story's awful. And some of the performances are terrible. The technical stuff, I'm fine with, but... Man, Hulk. Let's let's not speak of that one. I'm gonna spite pick it one week. You know what? Go ahead. We can re- revisit. <laughs> I will point out all the problems with that film. I forgot where I was even going with this because you know what? I'm, I've now got the Hulk in my mind, and I'm like, Arr. oh yes, I was gonna praise Ang Lee for being a fantastic director, minus the Hulk. Oh boy. And here I was thinking you were gonna go with like Lust Caution or something like that. You know, I don't think I've seen Lust and Caution. It's not bad. That's the big thing with Ang Lee. And it's probably also why it's hard to talk about him in either such highs or such lows, because the dude hasn't made a stinker. Even Hulk, if you can praise the aesthetic elements about it it's not a total stinker he hasn't reached the depths like even spielberg has screwed up on occasion i'm not big on his late 80s to early 90s stuff like hook and always and he also did the lost world which wasn't good we can speak about the big highs you know your schindler's lists and your raiders of the lost arcs and your munichs partly because he has those lows but because angley's career is punctuated by these gigantic highs than just kind of going to an even-keeled medium pace whereas the movie's not bad but it's not good and it's it's just kind of there that it makes it difficult to have like a thorough discussion about his filmography with your average cineast because we're so used to talking about things in peaks and valleys instead of he's been solid he's been solid forever and he makes great movies and it just seems like that kind of workman like approach is almost frowned upon in general cineast terms either everyone's a flawed genius and everything they do is going to be awesome or terrible or they achieve a reputation of a very different stripe being difficult to work with and so on whereas Ang Lee he's perfectly content doing his movie every two to three years and sometimes it's a gorgeous piece of work sometimes it's just some light fun like this and sometimes you get something amazing like Hulk yeah Oh, amazing's <laughs> not the term I would use, but, you know, I appreciate your love for that film, especially because I know how you are about things Marvel-related, so I'm actually shocked by your love for this film. Well, it's a self-contained story, and Marvel is as allergic to self-contained stories as I am to ticks at this point, so... It's at least got that going for it, if nothing else. They remembered how to start and end a story. So I'm glad I revisited this. I really needed something light. Things can be solved with a romantic gesture or one brave step at the end instead of it being more complex than is usually presented. This film comes like 1993, and it still feels relevant. It still feels fresh for the most part. Yeah, some of the aesthetics, there's some jokes that are dated, but this film still works. I'm glad I got to revisit it again because I forgot how well it is constructed. Cool, and I appreciate the discussion on this one. I think it's a good place to wrap up. So, Courtney, where can folks reach you? 
They can reach me at our Twitter account at Changing Reels AC, and they can also reach me on my personal Twitter account at Small Mind. And what about yourself? Uh, you can of course reach me at can'tstopthemovies.com. On Twitter, I'm at can'tstopdrew. I also monitor our Gmail account, which is changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. Also, please check out my Patreon. It's for Can't Stop the Movies, but it also helps support my production work here. And if you like what you hear, uh, we would love if you guys go on to iTunes and just give us some feedback. Rate our show. All feedback, positive, negative, it's welcome because you think constructive will help us produce a better show. For Andrew and myself, thank you for listening. And remember, you can change the conversation about diversity in cinema one reel at a time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. 